You're listening to She's Got Drive podcast, the podcast that inspires women to be the driver in their own life through the life and stories of black women with drive. And I'm your host, Shirley McAlpine. I'm a business consultant, an executive coach, and a leadership facilitator working with people and organizations to live their lives by design and not default. Thank you so much, everyone who's been in touch with me this last week. A big shout out to everyone who's writing to me about She's Got Drive. It's so great to hear from you. And remember, you can always contact me through my website on ShirleyMcAlpine.com. You can send me a message on Instagram at Consulting to send in all my love to all the listeners out there and invite you this week to really share the podcast with someone in your life, you know, someone who you think will be inspired by this, who you think will get a lot from listening to this podcast. You know, if you share it to at least one person, maybe two, because I'm really getting the feedback that once people are listening, you know, they're really getting a lot from not only the inspiration, but some ideas about how they can take their life on in a different way, which has been my intention for this podcast. I've spent the last week away. I had a family break. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Beautiful Michigan. Who knew how beautiful it is? And it was just lovely to spend some time to, you know, take it down a notch. You know, still do some work on the podcast, of course, to keep it keep it moving. But to have some break from being of service to others in a in a broader way as a coach and a consultant. And it's really important that we take that time for ourselves. So I hope you're taking your some time for yourselves this summer and taking a break somewhere and resting and relaxing. I'm wondering actually if you've managed to download my ebook off my website on how to be a woman with drive, head over to there, download it. And again, you know, some exercises, some some points of reflection for you on on where you can really take yourself to the next level. If you're interested in that, if you're up for that, then head over to ShirleyMcAlpine.com and you can get a download of my free ebook. This week is the third guest in my Apollo summer series. Here's another wonderful woman who joined me at the launch of the Apollo in May. And as I said before, we've heard their wisdom and not really their full story. So I'm interviewing each of them so we can hear more about who they are and how they got to be such amazing, accomplished women. And here we have Kimberly Sills Alice, the award-winning journalist, author, speaker, and communications consultant advocate for breastfeeding and infant health, a former senior editor at Essence and writer at Fortune magazine. She has just published her fifth book, The Big Letdown, How Medicine, Big Business, and Feminism Undermine Breastfeeding. She's the author of the Mocha Manual series, The Mocha Manual to a Fabulous Pregnancy, was nominated for an NAACP Image Award, the Mocha Manual to Turning Your Passion into Profit, and the Mocha Manual to a Military Life. So we're going to hear more from her. It's a passionate, enlivened, and um, wonderful interview with Kimberly. And so I give you Kimberly Seals Alice. Welcome to She's Got Drive, and thank you so much for sitting in the guest chair this week. And I know you've sat in the guest chair already at the Apollo so I'm really appreciative <laughs> that you've come back <laughs> you're willing to come back to, for us to find out more about you thank you so much for having me let's hear about where you started as a journalist you transitioned into being an author mm-hmm. so we can hear about what's your journey been like the black woman journalist because you are a rarity still today in this in 2017 <laughs> right and you've been at it a long time it's a real blessing. And I feel honored to have been in the space for so long. I mean, I've wanted to be a journalist since I was probably seven years old. You know, I've been writing all sorts of media. You know, I remember when I was little, I started a, you know, neighborhood, a, a block newsletter. It was total trash, very gossipy, nothing I'd be proud of. But, you know, the idea of uh, kind of gathering information and sharing it. My mom still has cassette tapes of my one person radio shows where I was both the interviewer and the interviewee. So it's a lot of weird history about, you know, kind of sharing ideas. I was blessed to be a person who knew what I wanted to do. And I never really veered from that at all. You know, so I went to college to NYU with that in mind. And that has kind of been my singular focus. And it's really interesting because it was a very 
you know, difficult journey, you know, when you're in college and you have to do internships and you have to work, but the best internships are unpaid and you got to learn how to balance, you know, kind of taking those opportunities with, you know, kind of getting a job because you need to kind of buy your books and do the things that aren't being covered. So, you know, it was, it was certainly a challenge. I was very proud that I worked really hard to really integrate the school newspaper at NYU where there weren't any people of color attending. And it was a very challenging environment to say the least, but it, it gave me great experience. I've been very grateful to mentors you know, people who helped me along the way. Journalism is very much about networking and who you know. To this day, I have never gotten a job from a newspaper. It was always about relationships and attending events and really getting to know people and, you know, kind of building that personal touch, you know, in this work. And so having mentors and, and networking was always pretty critical to my success. Mm. So that part was really easy for me. Not Not easy, but that was just what I was told was how it was. Um, now media has changed so much. Sometimes I feel bad when I have mentees because it's a completely different world right now. And I was blessed to come along when there actually were magazines. And, you know, that was right. important that we still had the printed form. And, you know, there was a robust industry behind that. So, yes, yeah, so a media is changing. And, and that's something to be aware of, you know, as you're building careers just around, you know, things change and we have to kind of be adaptable. Right. But for me, kind of getting to that point was, you know, really a formula of a lot of hard work. You know, I worked at Fortune for many years and there weren't many or any people of color there at certain times. And so those are always difficult environments for us. So kind of learning how to navigate that part, I think I was a little bit naive to feel like, well, I worked hard. I went to this great school. I have a portfolio. I have this and I have that. And, you know, to kind of believe that it was actually a meritocracy was a bit of my naivete. And then, you know, you quickly learn that there are other factors involved and you have to learn how to navigate that too. I also, I often would say, I wish I had the luxury to come to work and only think about work, but instead you have to strategize. How are you going to fit in here? How do you create, you know, a feeling of belonging there? How do you create connections? You know, it, it was another job just to try to, you know, fit in because being good about your work simply, you know, wasn't enough. Let's speak about the naivety a bit, because I think many of us have had that experience where we, we expect, of course, that it is a meritocracy, that we should be given our dues based on our potential, based on our hard work, and that doesn't always come through. What were the things that woke you up? I saw a lot of white males fail up, and I realized that, you know, it wasn't about the work at all. You know, I mean, in the same way that I could acknowledge that for me to get opportunities, it was about relationships and networking. That was really what it was about once you got the job, you know? And so I think for me, there was one particular person who was basically being promoted. We, you know, we used to joke he had a, a rocket launcher on his bum. <laughs> you know, he was just being promoted over and beyond. And no one could figure out how, why, like, you know, we just couldn't see it. So I remember, you know, sometimes you just need to engage. So I invited him out for lunch and, you know, I was very congratulatory. And I said, this is so great. You know, tell me, how did you do it? And he literally said to me, literally said to me that the people in charge realized that he wasn't a good writer. So they decided to make him an editor instead. And I'm like, what? <laughs> because if I wasn't a good writer, I would be asked to leave. I wouldn't be promoted over right. everybody else and move three and four levels up the chain. And so because of his relationships and where he went to school and where his father went to school and who he knew, he was allowed to fail up. And I knew that was a huge aha moment for me. And I struggled to get through the rest of that lunch without, you know, crying or flipping over tables, whichever. But um, it was a it was a real awakening about just how work is different, you know, for women and particularly for black women. And you really have to work, you know, three times as hard. And that relationship piece may be something that we can never scale. My father didn't go to college, so I don't have those types of networks and relationships to trade off of, right? You know, I'm a first generation college graduate. So these types of things put many people at a disadvantage in, in that space. And so we're constantly trying to figure out how do we create that relationship? How do we create that connection? Which when we don't have some of the traditional ones, which is part of the extra work on top of your work. Yes, yes. How did that change the way that you were working? To be quite honest, I had to invest time in other things. Like I learned about 
you know, whiskey and bourbon so that I could go to the bar with the men in the organization and hold a, re- a reasonable conversation. At that time, I covered Wall Street and there were many organizations that held golf clinics for women. And I would go and I would and I learned how to play golf. I kind of would really study what I could create conversation for. I would be prepared for any informal interactions in elevators. It was crazy. But this was the extra work and kind of having things, knowing that if I get a moment in an elevator with a key editor that I have prepared myself and I know that I could bring up something that I know that he's interested in or, you know, like mm-hmm. lots of research. But yeah, it was it was like a second job and, you know, kind of understanding even like humor. Right. And then it's really about managing your perception and for sometimes that's a visual perception. Unfortunately for women, you know, how you look and how you present yourself is important. And, you know, I had to learn what that looked like in that particular place that has varied at different places where I worked. It was certainly a challenge, like fitting in is is work when, you know, you don't have some of the other things that happen naturally. And also you're not working at a place that values differences, right? Like, you know, that just wasn't a place that valued differences. It was a place that was looking for a type. You know, I was trying to kind of squeeze myself into a round peg, which, which would never, which, which was never going to work because, right. you know, I'm always going to be a square. It's work and it's frustration. When did you move on from that and where did you head to? Yeah, I mean, for moving from there, I actually went into newspapers because I felt like newspapers, you really are only judged by what you do for that day. You know, in the newspaper world, you come in the morning, you get an assignment or you pitch ideas, you have to go out, report it. And you come back, you have a deadline, you produce your copy on time. And really, as long as you have delivered on time, that's your job. So I did find that the newspaper environment was more about your work, more about kind of delivering. You know, there's still some of the same issues about story assignments and and what type of work you get. But ultimately, you can get ahead just based on the metric of I deliver my copy. I have thoughtful stories. I've interviewed, you know, I felt it was a bit different. So that was a big challenge for me because I had never done that before. And I had a lot of fear attached to kind of going into daily journalism when I hadn't done it. And so I remember kind of having this real fear of success, you know, near self-sabotage moment because I had heard about the opportunity from a mentor. I had interviewed well, you know, I went into the interview probably thinking I would never get it. So I probably had an extra level of cockiness and confidence. And, um, and then I remember they offered me the job. I was super excited. And there was one thing I needed to do. I don't know whether it was like respond to an email, fill out a piece of paper, but I just dropped the ball. You know, it was like I had went through this process and I was clear that I was in self-sabotage mode because I was really afraid. Like I had never produced on that level before. I was grateful that they believed that I could, but I did not necessarily believe it myself. So I really had kind of like my first lesson in, wow, you know, you can really get into a mode on a subconscious level where you're just, you know, subconsciously sabotaging situations. So, you know, I was able to kind of get myself right and rectify but, you know, I nearly lost the opportunity. It was also a great pay increase for me. You know, it was just it was just my own stuff. And so I was able to go there and perform. And that really allowed me to feel more emboldened about my skill set. Right. And I was I was able to do something that I hadn't done before. And, you know, that really gave me another level of confidence about who I am and what I can do. Right. Wow. And that you almost missed out on that opportunity, too. Because of because we, we yeah, talk about total self sabotage, oh, oh gosh, yeah, and it looks so <laughs> innocent, doesn't it? As it's getting played out, like oh, I'm not responding to an email or something, but it's actually that it when it takes it takes hold, and you and really it's all your fear of of taking on something that is so big for you in that moment that you will get in your own way to that degree. Absolutely. And I didn't, I never intentionally said, I'm not going to do the email. I just got right. busy. And then I said, I would do it later. And then things kept coming up that obviously I allowed to come up. And right. next thing I knew I had missed the, the deadline of the time that they had asked me to respond. And, but, you know, never, of course, intentionally did I say, I'm not going to respond exactly. to this email, but, you know, sabotage is, is a real tricky one. <laughs> yeah. So there we can, and it can, it can, it can rear its head at, at, uh, 
it's never there's never a time where sabotage isn't a risk <laughs> right you know it's, it can right. come up right but you're, exactly but the lesson in seeing it Absolutely. and being able to intervene early enough you think oh it's me doing my self-sabotage thing again let me let me get in there yes. before it actually, yes. it actually does the damage so you grew yeah, in that role. Exactly. You grew in that role, and then um, how did you get to Essence? You know, I've always like senior editor at Essence magazine. How did you get to to be that? When did that emerge? Yes. So eventually, it's so interesting because I came back to Time Inc. Um, really, to be honest, that was the only way I was able to get promoted. I had worked there for years, and me leaving was actually the thing that made them want me back and promote me. So, you know, I, I often tell people like, sometimes you're just not being seen and, you know, it's almost like a male relationship. Sometimes you got to cut people off for them to, <laughs> for them to recognize your worth and, and, you know, want you or something. Um, but that's exactly what happened. I had been there really working hard and I just could not get ahead. And then once I left and other people really validated me and they saw that I was doing this great work, I was on the front cover, I was on the front page, I was covering Wall Street and breaking ways and having these great interviews. Then kind of down the line, it was like, well, how do we get you back? So, um, I eventually came back, you know, a few years in between. I had my daughter and, um, but, you know, I came back in a higher position mm -hmm. and was able to really negotiate well for me to come back because I knew that they wanted me. And then Time Inc. purchased Essence. And so they had asked that the, the new editor over there had asked me to come over. So it was great because obviously as a black woman, that's a dream job. And, you know, I was able to kind of maintain my stability and, you know, my, you know, my, my, my salary and packages and everything that I had. And literally that day that I moved there, I just picked up my purse because it was the same company. They moved everything to my new office. I didn't have to go outside because they built a bridge connecting it. I was like, this is the best job transfer ever. <laughs> so, um, I literally just picked up my purse and walked across the, the connecting hallway. So, um, yeah, so that was a great experience for me. I mean, it was obviously a dream to kind of think about being in an environment where I could be my authentic self. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned a lot about myself, really. And I really learned how being in those environments had created some negative conditioning. Um, and, you know, it, it was it was both a, a dream and, quite honestly, one of my biggest challenges. So, um, but, you know, it, it was great to kind of feel like I could walk into where I work and not be different. Um, to be, you know, understood and to actually be allowed to be myself and not to have to do all the extra work work that was on top of my work that, you know, I had to kind of do for the most of my career. Right. So given that you had this dream job, you finally get to be who you are and, and then you decide to leave that. You know, you decide to do your own thing. How did that, how did that come about? Because that seems like a crazy action considering you've worked so hard. You've come all this way, you've worked so hard, you're finally in a space where you get yes. to kind of be who you, who you want to be at work and then you're going to leave it. Who does that? Right. Who does that? Actually, a very great question. I mean, really, I love my job and I wish I could have stayed. Unfortunately, at that time, my marriage was falling apart and I really hadn't made a decision. Um, you know, I had a, I was living in the suburbs. So I had a very long commute. I was blessed to have a nanny at the home helping me with my children. But, you know, now that it looked like my marriage was falling apart, it became very important for me to be present for my children, mm -hmm. particularly during that transitional period, and really just to be that. And I could not figure out how to maintain my my career um, at, at that pace and what that required, you know, travel and time mm -hmm. and to be the mother to my children that I believe they needed at this time. And so, you know, me leaving was purely about me uh, being the mother that I needed to be um, and had nothing to do with my, my job, which was very hard to leave. But, you know, from, and people would always say, you know, even my parents thought I was crazy. Everybody thought I was nuts. Like, who leaves a six-figure job when you're going through a divorce? You know, like, who does that? But for me, the risk of not being the mother that I wanted to be and not being present for my children 
was greater than the risk of me not figuring out how to support myself. Like that risk, the risk of not being there for the children was the risk I was not willing to take. You know, I figured that I could figure out how to sustain myself and my family. And so really I created a plan. I talk about this in my Mocha manual from your passion to profit. I created a six month plan to really transition. I set my uh, quit date at that time in my Palm Pilot. Um, <laughs> showing your back, showing your <laughs> and, and then I, uh, you know, reverse engineered a plan, which was about getting my finances in order, reducing expenses and the work kind of creating the Mocha Manual brand in a way that it was a viable business that could, you know, support me um, at least in, as, as in, in transition and then thinking about how to use all of my skills as a writer. So, you know, I think I, I missed my quit day by like three weeks or something. But wow. every day that reminder was was nagging me that I wasn't <laughs> supposed to still be there. And so it just made me work harder. I made a lot of personal sacrifices. You know, I just said to my girlfriends, listen, I'm not going to be available socially, but I am asking for breast, you know, um, babysitting help. Sorry. I am asking for babysitting help mm-hmm. and really just structured my life and my downtime around building up my business and, you know, being very calculating about getting things to where I needed them to be so I could make this transition for my children. So your entrepreneurial journey started from this personal sh- shift and commitment to your children. And then this, because um, there, there, there's a whole, where you started to create your own business as an author, but you've got this whole consulting business as well that you do that's emerged since leaving Um, essence really yeah I think that's been the most important part of it for me is that even in my entrepreneurship uh even in that part of my life it's been a journey you know I mean the same way that media has changed like what I thought I was going to do like when I first started I was selling t-shirts and (laughs) I had a production line in my basement and then I was like I don't really like retails I don't like customer service you know and shipping and oh my goodness it was a mess and so I mean even though it was viable it just wasn't what I love to do and you know I had a very smart um marketing consultant um Julia Beck, who worked with me, and you know, she really helped me figure out, <clears throat> excuse me, what what is it that you actually love doing? Like, I understand you feel like you need to do this, but you know, you may be looking at this as like this is a viable market and this is where things are hot. But if you don't love doing it, it's not going to work. Um, and so she really helped me figure out that I wasn't meant to be in the t-shirt business. I was meant to be in the content business, right? Like that is who I am. And I didn't think about that in a different way, except what I knew, which was writing for magazines and things like that. So, you know, really kind of being in tune with who you are is very important as an entrepreneur, really understanding your strengths and weaknesses. um, And also like what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy um, and kind of understanding how you can balance that. But ultimately, you know, your business needs to be something that you enjoy. And even if there are bits of it that you don't, but the big picture needs to be work that you, you know, that you enjoy and can do well. So I was really grateful for that kind of uh, assessment process and really digging into getting to know myself on a different level. I think a lot of times we're just like looking for where's the, what I think the money is, what I think the money is. And that's an important consideration but it really shouldn't be the only one because it's not going to really be sustainable if you don't, you know, kind of have it in you. Right. Yeah. If, if every time you're waking up and you've got to do something you don't want to do, then that that isn't a, a life that you want. You know, so you, as you're saying, you're like choosing right. things that you're great at, things where can make you money and that, that you want to get up in the morning and do the work that, you can, that you've created, this business you've created for yourself. Exactly. How did you get to be an author and how did this journey start? Well, I think for me, you know, I had a great career in journalism and I was really um, not thinking about birth or breastfeeding at all. I was just kind of focusing on my career, was very pleased with my career trajectory. And then, you know, I became a mother and everything shifted for me. And I, you know, as a journalist, I really applied, you know, probably not in a good way that that rigor and that mentality to pregnancy. And I became very concerned about some of the statistics I was reading, particularly about black women and their birth outcomes and how they are still three times more likely to die during childbirth, twice as likely to have a low 
slow birth for a baby, you know, and all of these statistics were pointing to college educated black women as well. So, you know, in the mainstream community, white women, if they have education or are not, you know, poor, their birth outcomes improve. But black women, no matter how much money you're making or how educated you are, you still are statistically more likely to have a poor birth outcome. And that, quite honestly, scared me. You know, I never thought of myself as a risk. And I was very disturbed and, and really shocked to find out that, you know, basically black women were a, a modern medical mystery, um, you know, at this time in, in our history. And so I, I wanted to really write something about that. And I think that's really been my work is how can I be of service to women? Um, you know, I started really talking, looking at black women and thinking about areas that were really that were relevant to my life. So mm-hmm. um, kind of starting with pregnancy, because that's where I was at the time. But really looking at these issues from a sociological perspective. I mean, you know, I'm not a doctor or a physician, but there was something going on in black women's lives. Right. There wasn't a medical reason why we um, <clears throat> were having these poor birth outcomes. There was a sociological factor social stressors, role of racism, et cetera, whatever many studies have pointed to, but how can we look at the other stuff? And that has kind of been my model of looking at the other quote unquote stuff and women's lives that impacts something that's really important to them. Right. So this started because of your, your own personal experience, then leading to you doing the research. And then that started, you've written five books in, is that 10 years? Something like 12 years. That's a yeah. lot of, that's amazing. <laughs> right? So there's people who go, <laughs> you know, this. Where, amazing to me too. It's amazing it's to like, me too. Yeah, it's really an acknowledgement for you about your ability and your, um, yeah, so let's get into that. What, how did you move on to get uh, to, to write other books? And, and what is it about you that's, that's had, that has all these books inside of you, like waiting to get out? What's your key message that you want to get out? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that for me, my my work has been kind of centered around empowering women in different areas of their lives. Like that's for me the theme that runs through it. So whether I'm empowering you around your pregnancy or empowering you around your business, my books have really been about one, providing that sociological context, um, particularly with the Mocha Manual. So it was like, what's unique about this experience for women of color? So even when I did the Passion into Profit book, it was clear that all the statistics show that black women and were actually starting more businesses. You know, they had a much higher rate of starting businesses, but their business success rate was much lower. Right. Um, and if you look at the number of businesses that actually scaled up to, you know, having employees or a million dollar status, those numbers were, you know, ridiculously low in comparison. So there was something going on, like all these women clearly had a dream and a vision for themselves around, you know, creating a life for themselves, but they weren't really meeting that goal in a meaningful way, or we were just kind of stuck in this, you know, kind of mom and pop um, operation, not that there's anything wrong with that, but clearly we could, there was, there was the types of businesses show that these could be multi-million dollar businesses. So I really have always tried to kind of stand in a gap, you know, looking at um, where we are, where we need to be. So again, with the pregnancy, women are having babies, we're not getting the outcomes. There's a huge gap there that needs to be addressed. So that has kind of been always my thread. Um, Even with the military book, you know, at the time that was um, my publisher, HarperCollins' idea, we were at war. Um, there was a lot of interest in in, in kind of military families. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, there's a show on Lifetime called Army Wise, which was really popular. So I think that, you know, it was just a time that we were very concerned and there's a lot of interest in military families. And again, looking at what's unique for women of color in that experience, um, because we know that in that, you know, in, in the military, the experience can be so unique. Right. So always trying to kind of figure out you know, where's the gap for women of color and what information, inspiration can we provide that kind of helps them get through that, a unique circumstance. So for me, even the big letdown, you know, kind of looking at even our numbers in terms of how many women actually start off breastfeeding and how many women are able to continue that goal six months in, it's a huge drop off, you know? So something's happening. People, women are starting out with something, but not really sticking with it. And if they 
didn't stick with it because they wanted to but couldn't, that's a problem, right? If you just, you know, had enough, I'm cool with that. But um, again, what the research was showing was that women were facing all these barriers. Um, and so I really wanted to write something that didn't talk about this issue as a woman's problem, like on an individual level, mm -hmm. but really showed all the structural gaps, the ways that our society fails women and doesn't support them about this goal that is very important to women, but also very important to infants and their health. Right. And so again, trying to kind of see that, that gap and what is the information and inspiration that women need in that gap. Right. And so let's talk a little bit more about that because this is your current book and what are the things, what are the structural barriers to women breastfeeding that you, that you, that you speak about in, in your book? That if women are aware of mm -hmm. that, they can bring some agency to those, to those barriers so that we can get, have a breakthrough around breastfeeding in this country. Right. Well, I think one of the biggest barriers in, in our country is the lack of a federal maternity leave policy, a paid policy. And there's a lot of movement now to get that done. You know, now we see we see states stepping up, but, you know, sometimes those have limitations. But, you know, in this country, we don't value motherhood to say, listen, you, you need to take off a meaningful period of time to do that. Right. And we say that, you know, it's perfectly okay for me to pay somebody else to take care of my kids, but no one would pay me to actually be home and mother. That's not considered valuable work. And that doesn't make sense as a society. So really understanding that we don't even have the structures. Some women are going back to work two and three weeks after birth. Right. Um, and sometimes in the space of that reality, they don't even really bother trying to breastfeed because they're really thinking about how little time they have to get back to work. So, and that's real. Um, so that's one of the key, you know, structural barriers. Also, a lot of women depend on physicians, you know, OBGYNs and pediatricians for information. But the truth is that they are not being educated in, in medical school about lactation at all. And so we have assumed that these are knowledgeable people about infant feeding, but they may have received 30 minutes. Um, I interviewed a lot of doctors for my book and, you know, some of them could recall a half a day of training at best. And so, you know, women are wow. turning to people for breastfeeding support and these, these physicians need breastfeeding support themselves, you know? Um, and so it's very interesting to me that, um, that this is happening and that women haven't kind of, um, you know, kind of clamored for greater accountability among physicians about something so important as infant feeding. Um, and then we know that commercial interests have been a big factor in this country. I mean, everything changed historically when they figured out they can make money from replicating mother's milk. Right. And so we know formula is necessary. Um, we know that it needs to be there for the mothers who need it. My, my baby needed it for some time. And so that's very, very important. But to go from that a product as a backup to a multi-billion dollar industry that now wants to be choice one when it's not the healthiest option, that's not in the best interest of women and babies either. And so we've kind of gone clear to the other side um, and really, you know, what these companies do to influence mothers to not even, you know, think about them, the, you know, breastfeeding is in my opinion, unethical and very um, undermining to women. Um, and then lastly, I'll just say like, you know, just women doubting themselves has, has been a big issue. You know, the fact that women feel like they don't have sufficient milk, you know, none of us wakes up every day and starts wondering if our bladder is not going to work or, you know, I don't know if my, I don't know if my kidneys are going to work today, but, you know, but for some reason we women worry right. about their bodies doing biologically what they're made to do. Right. Um, and so this idea of kind of breeding doubt and, and, and marketing doubt and kind of making money, excuse me, off of women doubting themselves right. is, is something that I, I, feel very strongly against, you know, that women should be making these decisions, whether you choose formula or not, from an empowered space, not because you're worried that you're not enough, you know. Um, but that's what has happened in this country, that by making women doubt themselves, they've been able to make money. And I don't think that's the way they should make money. Yeah, that's so, there's so much in there, you know, because if there are listeners, or I know there are listeners who listen to this podcast outside of the U.S., and you'll be sitting there thinking, what? What do you mean no maternity leave? Because in the UK, you can take up to a year 
um, is not on full pay, but, uh, you know, and depending on where, who your, who your employer is, but you've got a structural system that supports women being, um, being with their babies, um, in the first year of life, which is critical. Exactly. To, to this. And I think even from the medicalization of birth, like once they told us that, you know, we had to birth our babies with doctors and, and machines and, and it was, you know, it was dangerous. And if you look historically, a lot of that was because it was women who was who were birthing babies, right? It was midwives and, and really men came along and said, we can't have these silly women doing that if we can make money for it from it. And so if you look at it historically, it has always been about kind of, you know, kind of removing power from women. And that's, something that I think we need greater awareness of the right. reason why we're told to go to a hospital, you know, the reason why, you know, we have so much medical intervention in our birth, which also impacts breastfeeding, you know, all of this is, is about disempowering women. And so, um, it, it's a very important trend because I find that these experiences kind of shape you as a mother, right? Yes. I wrote a piece about what I call birth regret. You know, I end up having two C-sections, which for a while I couldn't really explain why. You know, they told me something, but, you know, I, I still didn't really understand why. And so, and then it, it, it stuck with me and it bothered me and it, and it hurt me that I did not bring my children into the world in a way that felt good for me. You know, um, obviously, you know, of course, safety is first, et cetera, but far too many women are kind of walking out of birth traumatized, you right. know, and who wants to enter motherhood in that, you know, in, in that zone, like, you know, and you see that playing out and women are, I see them all over the country. They're really struggling because their birth experience felt more traumatic than empowering and who wants to enter motherhood or any important relationship and, and kind of get get on it as women to really take a stand to say, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really looking for that experience that we have to create something new. We need medical intervention and absolutely we do. This isn't about saying that medical intervention isn't needed and wanted at times when um, women are quote unquote at risk or the baby's quote unquote at risk. But there isn't what we're speaking about here. We're speaking about the overutilization. No, that's not of, what we're talking about. We're talking medical about. medical yeah. intervention the medicalization of, of, uh, of birth and that it's now the norm versus um, in other parts of the world that is not the case uh, where medical intervention is used as a way to address some issues that are arising in birth versus uh, here it's the norm. More, there are more cesarean sections than the World Health Organization says there should yes. be. Um, there are more women, the maternal um, mortality rate is rising in the U.S. versus declining, as as in other parts of of um, the developed world, um, and it's and in terms of infant mortality is rising versus reducing as well. So it's not even like the medicalization is creating better outcomes, and that is not the case. Exactly, as well as the issues around breastfeeding. So. I um, wanted to wanted us to really underline that because I know there'll be some listeners, and it isn't a judgment either if you've been a woman who's had a cesarean, but it is a, to highlight the issue around the trauma that that can create and the challenges that creates in a system that doesn't always empower women in the birth process. Um, so right, and it's it's so important. I mean, we're talking about medically unnecessary. I mean, even briefly from my own circumstance, when I had a C-section, and they were saying that I didn't dilate, and then they gave me this drug, and then I just laid on my back, and then you know they said we had waited ten hours, which of course to them felt like they had given me an enormous amount of time. But really, I should have been walking. Like I've asked every midwife I know, right, including Jenny Joseph, because, you know, you laying in a bed is not how you advance on your back is not how you advance labor. So, you know, just just the practice itself. And then, you know, this concept of time, right? Birth is something that happens. You know, it takes time. But in the hospital, they don't give you time. They need that bed. People are going to be on shift changes and that requires a whole nother level of paperwork. So they really were looking at me like we need to have her out of the here. You know what I'm saying? So, so there was a time consideration that was about the hospital and not about me, my body, what's best for my experience or whatever. And so these other considerations um, have have kind of also fueled, you know, unnecessary interventions um, instead of letting the birth process just kind of be the process. Um, right. And so, so that's really, really important to consider. 
Wow. So you do, I mean, I wanted, you're doing such important work. I know you're traveling around the country promoting your book at the moment, doing a book tour and speaking to audiences about these critical issues as well. Um, what are you finding as you go out on your, on your tour as you speak about this? Yeah, I mean, there are two things. Um, I mean, one is a kind of like where I talk about feminism because I take a big heat. I take a lot of heat for that. And people are often, you know, giving me the side eye about how dare I mention feminism, my book title. And the other thing is, is about guilt. So I'll talk about feminism first. I mean, you know, for me and the argument that I make, so when people get their back up, I often ask them if they've actually read it, but they usually haven't. But, you know, this idea, one, that as women, we can't challenge the institutions and ideas and ideological frameworks that we are a part of is not is not the way forward either. Right. So we, we, we have a right to challenge and question feminism or womanism or whatever you want to call it, because it's clear that it hasn't worked for everybody. But one of my main points about feminism was that, you know, kind of particularly around the early wave movements was that in our very important quest to be viewed as equal to men that we forgot to fight for the things that make us uniquely women, including birth and, 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 and lactation. And so, you know, we were fighting to be viewed as equal and then we were really suppressing who we were as women. And so this is what we're seeing now with this unintended consequence around women being forced into male work patterns, go back to work in two weeks. And, you know, if, if you, if you dare lactate, please go into this room and, and, and pump. And, you know, this whole idea that there's no space for us to be women who are also mothers is a challenge. Um, and so we really want to make sure that as a broad based women's movement, that we have a space for women who, you know, clearly deserve the rights to not reproduce and everything that that deserves, but also that there are protections for those who choose to use the uterus, right? Like, you know, um, and, and what we've had is a whole reproductive rights movement that's been focused on not getting pregnant or on or ending an unwanted pregnancy, very important stuff. Um, and what about my right to feed? And yes. so really rethinking that, you know, we have to build a feminist movement that values mothering too, that doesn't say that that is demeaning and that we're not kind of putting ourselves back into 1950s, you know, um, women, uh, women's uh, experiences just because we're okay with having a baby dependent on us, you know, for food. Like that's not a crime against womanhood yes. because an infant is dependent on you. As I say, I mean, dependency happens. So we will all be dependent on someone else at some point in our life. And we can only pray that they will be kind and gentle to us, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and not view that dependency as a burden. Um, and so for us to give that to our infants for a relatively relatively short period of time in their lifespan, you know, is, is not something that demeans us as women. It just, for me, reinforces and empowers our, our role as life givers and, and, and sustainers and nurturers. And we have to start valuing that more as women before we can expect others, including policymakers to fully value that. Right. Right. I've got I just want to say an amen, actually, when you say that. I just want to say an amen (laughs) to that. We have to do that for ourselves. We need to take that on for ourselves. It's not going to be granted to us. And you speak so powerfully about how even for the the best will in the world, the the feminist movement and what that early, the early ideology around it and what it means wasn't, wasn't a holistic movement in many ways and the impact of that you speak so powerfully about that and i would love your feedback on this because the other thing that's really dominant both in the breastfeeding but just in the mothering space is this idea of guilt and shame right and so Mm -hmm. for me in the breastfeeding world it's like we don't want to make moms feel guilty because they didn't breastfeed or they whatever and then on the other side a lot of moms who feed with um you know a formula feed they feel like they're being shamed and I'm really, I've been, you know, as I travel the country, I'm having these conversations about guilt and shame and, you know, kind of one, I'm always thinking about where do we get these words from? Because they were sold to us, you know, from, from people who want to make money. Right. But also for me, like guilt means that if you feel bad about something, that often means that you wanted to do something that didn't happen, you know, and, right. and, and, and acknowledging that 
is is not terrible. But this idea that women are so fragile and they should never feel any type of quote unquote negative emotion, I, I, I just I, I still struggle with that. You know, it's like if you feel guilty about something, one, that's an acknowledgement that something didn't happen that you want to happen. Right. Two, for me, motherhood is about guilt the whole spectrum. My daughter is now a teenager and, you know, I still have mommy guilt about traveling. Um, and three, you know, guilt is, is, is an emotion that needs to be processed and dealt with and, and, and then put away. I don't yes. know. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, guilt, motherhood guilt. Yeah, breastfeeding guilt. I think one thing you do point to is, is right that when guilt is present, it does say there is some intention, some expectation, some standards, some something that you wanted, and in and then didn't wasn't able to to provide. And so, the thing around breastfeeding, for example, let's come back to that: is if you don't have an environment that supports you for that vision, for that dream and then you leave it behind, what can arise is guilt and shame that you, you, didn't, you didn't do what you were quote unquote supposed to do, or you didn't do what you wanted to do or what you intended to do or what the ideal of motherhood is for you. And that does need to get processed. Um, sometimes that guilt, when we think it come, we expect it to come from outside of us is actually coming from inside of us because of that ideal that we have. When we're pregnant, we have lots of vision for ourselves as a mother. We've read the books, we've seen the films, we've seen the images. We see a woman breastfeeding mm -hmm. in a cafe. We think, oh, look how easy that looks. Okay. And then, but it's not, it is actually not easy. By the time she, she, you're seeing her breastfeed in the cafe, so gently holding that baby, latching on, she has been through so much drama and pain in the journey to get that right. in the first couple of weeks. It's not easy to breastfeed in the first mm -hmm. couple of weeks, but you don't have that vision. You, what you have is the woman who you've seen breastfeeding, who's really, it's really established, the baby's latching on, it looks so idyllic, looks so beautiful. You don't see the crack nipples. I'm, excuse me, I'm getting a bit graphic here. You don't see the pain. I remember my husband, I remember taking a sharp intake of breath. I used to go one, two, three, help him latch on. One, two, three. Ooh count to 10 and then he, okay you're right and you're thinking please don't fall please don't come off the breath please don't come off the breath oh you've come off the breath that's the first couple of weeks when it gets gets past that then you know like i could be just i would breastfeed anywhere i could breastfeed shopping i'd be walking down the street i've been my the baby carrier the baby's breastfeeding like then it's very very yes, easy yes, yes. and so much easier than formula actually at that point you know I didn't have I want to say I had my babies in the UK I didn't have the issue where and I, I'm self-employed too um I work for myself so I didn't have the issue that I had to return to work in two weeks and that is something that is a structural issue which is a big barrier but it isn't insurmountable if inside of a no. conversation for what's possible. But I think, you know, the guilt, the guilt can come from inside of us and the guilt can come from outside of us, like the shame. But we need to process that for ourselves. What was the ideal that I had as a mother that wasn't getting fulfilled in that moment that I now feel guilty about? And if I can own that right. and honor that, then I don't have to carry that. You know, making sure that that ideal is realistic, right? You're saying make sure we are presenting an accurate picture so that women don't think breastfeeding is something that it's not. So making sure the ideal is actually rooted in reality um, and not, you know, some of these pictures they put in the magazine, which, you know, I, I really don't encourage people to look at um, because it creates a false perception and it doesn't tell you about all the, the, the struggles that you will have. And then also to understand that one of the things, you know, when I travel and people are like, how do we help women not feel guilty? And I think women are taking it personally. And because we've made this an individual conversation where we, where your success is only up to you, I tell women, you know, the system failed you. It wasn't you. Yeah. 
you you were in a setup for failure to begin right. with. And the fact that you eked out two weeks or two months is a triumph, right? And so once we can change the conversation around shifting it from some sort of individual failure, because that just leaves it about me and then I'm going to carry my guilt on my own and it's all about me, mm-hmm. to understand that there's a structural failure, right. then we as women can band together and try to, you know, a- attack these forces that are against us. And that's, you know, ultimately what the big letdown is about. It's like there's a structure and a system that's set up, you know, that's really set up for your failure before you begin, you right. know. And so once we can start talking about that and not make this about women and their guilt and they're just, you know, feeling like they have to carry it on their own, I'm really hopeful that we can, you know, kind of transform this conversation um, because at this rate it's not sustainable. Like, you know, women are really feeling the weight um, and it, it worries me. It worries me. Yeah, you speak to because the the thing that is critical to any success or in any goal that we have, like when we take out to anything more generally, is how do we have support in fulfilling our goal and in fulfilling our dream? And and clearly there isn't sufficient breast support for women who want to breastfeed. You know, there isn't a, this, mm. a and that and that there then that's that and because we have all bought into that conversation sometimes even in our families they're like I don't know why you're breastfeeding I don't get yes. it you know why do you want to just give the baby a ball you know so because they're also a part exactly. of exactly. the culture exactly. around um not supporting women around breastfeeding their babies so it really requires you to be so strong in order for you to get over those barriers that are put in your in, in place as well as the the, the challenges of what it takes to breastfeeding in the beginning, because it is, you know, as you learn. And, and when you're a new mother, hello, you know, with the, right. the mother's born. Right, and, that's, that's just in general. That's just in enough, general, you know? okay. And then, then you've got all these barriers. If you've got to go back to work and you've got a community that's saying, I don't get it. Why do you want to breastfeed? Just give the baby a bottle. And you don't have anyone in the hospital setting who is saying, let me teach you how to breastfeed which happens in the UK. You have right. breastfeeding counsellors, you have midwives who are saying, let me teach you how, it, how, how to do it. Kimberly, you have accomplished so much from starting your journey as a journalist, becoming an author, campaigning around those issues that matter to women and um, black women. My question to you is, what is it about you that has you produced these amazing results in the areas that you care about and the work that you're doing? Mm. Well, that, that's a great question. I think that um, there are two things. One, I'm proud of. One, I'm probably not so proud of. But I mean, I think for me, part of it goes back to the same reason why I left my my you know wonderful job was that I haven't been afraid to take risks, right? And you know, kind of looking at risks from a different perspective, um, and always looking at being willing to take on a risk and try something new. That is part of my personality. Um, And even though there have been times when I've needed some coaching and some help and some support to get past my fears, and generally, generally, I'm not a person who's afraid to take a chance. And so I think, you know, that has been a big part of it. And also kind of learning to trust myself. Um, you know, even with my very first book, the pregnancy guidebook, I had only had two children and, you know, I'm sure there were a lot more qualified people who, who could have written that book, who may have had different experiences. But the bottom line is I figured out the process and I did it. I learned how to get an agent. I understood how to write a book proposal. I knew how to pitch myself. And, and so really sometimes just doing it, um, is what really separates success from those who have been able to always reach their goals. And I'm not a person who's afraid to actually do the work. So I think that's true. And I think the other part of me is, you know, um, I've, not afraid of sacrifice. And sometimes that has mean that has meant sleep, which I'm not particularly proud of, but you know, sometimes that has meant shutting down my social life and, you know, kind of only having bandwidth for my children and my work. And, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about balance, but in different areas of my life, I've had to redefine what that means. And perhaps my me time is just 10 minutes sitting on the floor doing a stretch or a morning meditation, and then that's it. Um, so I've been willing to make sacrifices, sometimes tough ones. And I do find that for some people, 
that's not always an easy journey. So I would say those are two things. Um, you know, I could go a little o- o- over the board, a little OTT, probably on the giving up sleep, which I'm really trying to work on. But I think this idea of sacrifice and being willing to put in the time, being willing to grind it out and just put in the work is something that um, I feel has been key for me. Mm. Okay, so then if we, given your journey today, if you had to speak to the younger Kimberly, and we had to go back and you were saying, speaking to her with the wisdom that you have today, what would you tell her? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think this may sound completely contradictory to what I just said, but I do think that, you know, finding balance is important. Um, I wish I was better at that. The other thing that I do want to note is that, you know, I lost, I have, I have, um, succeeded in many ways, but you know, I I lost my marriage. My marriage failed. You know, I still haven't achieved the relationship success that I wanted. So I want to be clear that there has been, I feel there's been a price that I've paid for perhaps, you know, being the way I'm being and and the path that I have chosen and, and, you know, that I'm still working out in therapy, but, um, you know, I, I do want to acknowledge that there have been costs along the way. Um, and that part, I wish my younger self could know how to manage better. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would tell her because I'm not really sure what I could have done differently. But I do know that, you know, kind of having success and, you know, I am, I have had very clear moments where I stand on a stage, get a standing ovation, really have um, humbly saw my ability as a speaker and my power in the room when people are crying wow. and, and, and on their feet clapping for what I have just said and done. And then I walk off the stage and, you know, there's nobody waiting for me to give me, you know, no one special, I should say, in a romantic way or nobody that I could call to be like, hey, babe, guess what happened? You know, so sometimes like that, that kind of after emptiness is something that I I wish I uh, knew how to tell myself, um, teach myself how how not to avoid. So I just want to be, you know, really honest that there's, I feel there's a price that isn't paid. And, and many successful black women may feel that they pay that price um, around their personal relationships and their romantic relationships right. when they have taken on this path. In fact, very briefly, when I did the Passion to Profit book, I had no intention of writing. It actually has a chapter on relationships that I did not intend on writing. But when I started reporting and getting these women's stories and all of these successful entrepreneurs, many of them, many of them had lost their marriages or were not having relationship success. And I thought it was very important to note that. Um, And so I added a chapter that looked at that because you know, many of these women were looking extremely successful by one metric, but they weren't they were still filling a hole in another metric. So I think that it's important for us to say that and name that and acknowledge that that may be an area where we wish we had a different outcome. Right. Yeah. That it's not that that we don't always have the full picture when we see the success of women and, and that we always have work. There's always work in progress for us all in our lives and what we're working on. And it's, and, and what do we need to do to, to to move closer to where we want to be holistically in our life. So yeah, a big price that's been paid there. Exactly. Exactly. So Kimberly, what's what's next for you? What's what are you working on now? Uh, well, one of my goals, you know, branding wise has been, you know, I travel a lot for speaking. I'm very proud of my uh success as a speaker, particularly, you know, in in breastfeeding and infant health and maternal health spaces. So I've been really working on leveraging, um, you know, that, that, uh, that success into, um, creating an online platform for my thoughts and my ideas so that people can come to me. So I'm not limited by where I could physically travel. Mm-hmm. And so I'm super excited about kind of really launching a series of online events related to different topics that I care about. The first one I'm launching in September is um, really going to be focused on 
uh, infant health and breastfeeding, but really looking at the community as the next frontier in breastfeeding support and how do we better understand community? How do we better engage community? How do we not look at community as a place we go to fix and change, but a place that we can actually learn from, you know, and find solutions? I believe very much that, you know, there's there are solutions in the community, particularly those that we call disadvantaged and under-resourced and, 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 and under this and under that. But there are, there's real value there. So I'm, so I'm launching with that one. I'm going to do another one that really looks at the broader theme of the big letdown, which is, you know, the different areas where women are being let down in their lives um, by structural barriers or commercial interests. So I'll do that one later in the year and just really trying to expand what I feel was one of my strengths around thought leadership and also being a convener to bring people together to think about things in a new way. Um, and, and so I'm excited about that. I have another book in me. I may be able to um, get a proposal out, um, something a little bit different, but more about my motherhood experience. So I'm, I'm always walking around with my notebook, literally a notebook full of ideas. And you know that, Shirley, because you've got me a new notebook when you thought my other one was too cumbersome or too weary. So, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm, you know, thinking about that and still supporting the big letdown. I get back on tour in September. I'm going to the Pacific Northwest in several cities. I'm doing five cities there in September, October. I'm in Australia. Um, I'm doing some events here in New York. So, you know, it's picking up. And then I go, actually, I'm in Sacramento, San Francisco, and then LA um, toward the end of October. So yeah, the big letdown is still on the move and I'm, you know, making things happen and really excited about the momentum. Wow, Kimberly, there's so much happening. Congratulations on all of it, you know, on your successes and also the powerful and amazing work you're doing with The Big Letdown and um, touring the country. It's, it's, you know, you're promoting your book and you're promoting these issues and that we care about so, so much. As we heard in our conversation in this interview, I just want to acknowledge you for everything that you're giving and all the work that you're doing for women and black women of color and black women out there. It's just amazing, really amazing. Oh, thank you so much. And I really want to acknowledge you. You've been a great coach and advisor, a kick in the pants person when I've needed it, but also supportive. And what's happening right now with um, She's Got Drive is really an important vehicle for us to have these conversations and share stories, right? And that's really the way we learn. Um, that's what I've been producing in book form, a way for us to learn and share stories and experiences. And I'm really proud of you for creating this platform for, for many women to share their story and experiences as well. It's so much needed. Thank you. Thank you. So where can we get hold of you with our listeners? Where can they find you? Yeah, the best way to keep up is at KimberlySealsAllers.com. Uh, there you will find my upcoming events. There you can order the book. There you can keep in touch with my blog and what I've been writing about and my ideas there. I would also love your listeners to sign up for my newsletter. I share unique things um, just to my newsletter audience. So if you sign up for the newsletter, you get a bit more of the behind the scenes look at the craziness that is Kimberly Seals Allers <laughs> and my life. So I encourage you, your listeners, to please sign up for the newsletter at KimberlySealsAllers.com. Um, yeah, on Twitter, I'm I am K Seals Allers, also on Instagram, and then the Kimberly Seals Allers Facebook page. Please go there, like it. I'm usually posting, you know, pictures of events and sharing ideas. We're doing a video series, so there's a lot going on. Great. Well, I'm going to also put all of those links in the show notes, so our listeners can Great. link into that. Um, and it'll be on the artwork. And yeah, Kimberly, you are phenomenal, a phenomenal woman. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so much for supporting me at the Apollo as well. And um, in the launch, you, I'm looking forward to your series as it comes out in September. And uh, just until we see each other again, just deep appreciation to you. Absolutely. And the feeling is very much mutual. Thank you, Shirley. I hope that you've been inspired to shift gears in your own life. You can hear in Kimberly's passion for women being informed, for having choice and for recognizing the structural obstacles that are in our way of getting what we want in life. And often we think it's all us. You know, we can focus on 
what we need to do all the time without really seeing fully the systemic and broader challenges that we're facing. Um, and they're big now. We always have to look inside ourselves to see how do we get over those obstacles, but at least it's important to acknowledge that they're there. Um, and then we've got some agency with how we deal with it. If we can't shift the huge systemic obstacles, then how can we, de how can we um, deal with it? It's my passion for human rights around birth and um, the birth of a mother as well as the birth of a child is something that I care about deeply as well. So I really love that I got to have that conversation with Kimberly today as well in, in the interview. So, so much there, so much there. I'm left so impacted actually by that interview. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. So I'm curious about what you got from listening to the interview with Kimberly what insights you might be left with what what you know were you triggered on any of those conversations i know some of them are around motherhood breastfeeding bowl feeding all of those things can be triggering for us as women as well the conversation around guilt shame what are the things that you're left with and all oh, the failure up remember that one what are the things that you're left with what are the things that you are taking on what inspired you and love to hear from you love to hear from you so head over to shirleymcalpine.com where you can leave me messages you can send me messages or on instagram at shirley mcalpine consulting as well she's got drive facebook pages a place where you can get into engaging some comments as well around the show you know any of those spaces i look forward to hear from you she's got drive is produced by cassandra voltalina the music is by the awesome female band blonde and i look forward to connecting with you again so until next time go well and stay well <laughs>